All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we open God's word together this morning, let's ask his guidance on our time of study. Father, thank you for this time that we have to look into your word, recognizing that this reflects your thinking from eternity past. In fact, uh, for all time, for all eternity, these embody for us a core element of all that you know. This is what you have revealed to us for the purpose that we might come to understand who you are, why you created us, why the creation itself, and what the problems are as a result of sin, and why there is sin, and why there continues to be evil. And that the only solution is that which begins at the cross. And that the cross is the payment for this sin, that eventually there will be redemption of all that there will be a time that will be, is actually referred to as the re- regeneration and that there it will be a restoration and eventually a new heaven and new earth. And it starts at the cross. Father, help us to understand these things and the importance of the transition that occurs after the cross in this new dispensation, understanding our mission as outlined by the Lord Jesus Christ here in Matthew 28. And we pray that you might help us understand this in Christ's name. Amen. We're continuing our study today on these last few verses in Matthew, commonly referred to as the Great Commission. This isn't the only place that Jesus articulated the future mission and ministry for the disciples. He does that. He actually does it at the end of the up time in the upper room after the Lord's table in what is referred to as the Upper Room Discourse from John 14 through and even including the High Priestly Prayer in John chapter 17. That's before he goes to the cross. After he goes to the cross, when he won, the first time he met with the disciples, he said that he was sending them. After uh, In Matthew, in Mark, in Luke, there are also developments of his statement of their mission as well as in the opening chapter of, of Acts. So all of these together are part of and express different facets of the mission of the apostles in the church age. And we must understand that the Great Commission itself must be interpreted within the framework of this new thing that begins uh, with the church age. It is foundational to understanding the great the Great Commission. And so... Today we'll look a little bit more at the term, at the command, actually, the mandate here to make disciples and understanding what that means, and then the concept of baptism. We'll look at teaching after I get back. We won't finish today. You just thought we would. So did I. Okay. 
The closing section, Matthew 28, uh, 18 through 20. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, or as I pointed out last time, that should be translated as you are going, while you are going, make disciples of all nations by baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, by teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." So as we look at the Great Commission, we see this statement we evaluated last week. All authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth. Then he says, go, therefore, literally while you are going, as you are proceeding in life. Then the command, make disciples of all nations. And then the first way in which this is done, it's an instrumental participle by baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Fifth, also an instrumental participle, by teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And then the concluding statement, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now, we looked at the context last time where this takes place in Galilee, The disciples finally believed Jesus. They went up to Galilee. They first encountered him there uh, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Seven of them did, but this is subsequent to that when he is meeting with the eleven now in Galilee. And uh, when they saw him, they worshipped him and some doubted. Now, just to remind you of this, And it's interesting because as I study and as I prepare, each week I go back and I read different commentaries and different things. Some of them are supposed to be good commentaries. Some of them are wish they were. And I'm even among dispensationalists. And everybody, almost to a man, still thinks the doubting here may have something to do with doubting the resurrection, although a lot of them will recognize that. They still seem to wonder, what's this all about? And I contend that we have to understand this contextually. We understand it contextually because the statement about doubting is sandwiched between the term worshiping him in verse 17 and his statement subsequent to their worshiping him, all authority is given to me. Here it's about authority, exousia. It means the right or authority. In what area has this authority be given to Jesus is fundamental to understand. And worship itself, the word proskuneo, which means to bow down, coming from the root idea of of kiss, kuneo, throwing a kiss towards someone in authority. It's an act of homage. It's an act of submission. It's an act of obedience. And so you have an authority-nuanced word, worshipped, in between doubted, and then Jesus says all authority. So we must understand doubt, as I said last time, within this context, that it's a, they're, they're not sure what's next. They know that he's resurrected, but what's, the, what's next on the agenda? We know that they are slow to pick up on the teaching, and that Jesus teaches them even... Even as he is about to ascend, they're still saying, is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom? 
it takes them a while to put the pieces together, and I don't think they do until the Holy Spirit comes on the day of Pentecost. But the doubting here, I think, relates to where are we going? Everybody's against us. Are we still marked criminals? Will the Pharisees kill us? How can we go forward from here? What do we do? That's the context here. And so Jesus tells them that this authority has been given to him. And again, as I read and read more this week, many people, many dispensationalists all connected this to Daniel 7. But as I pointed out last time, and why Daniel 7.14 is so important is this handing of the kingdom to uh, to the the one who comes before the throne there, uh, before the Ancient of Days, the Son of Man, that occurs at the end of the tribulation. And I didn't read anybody yet who identifies that specifically. And that is so important because the authority here is not kingdom authority because Jesus isn't a king. He ascends to heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father, Revelation chapter uh, three verse uh, twenty one. He is not. Uh, he is not the king yet. He's not been given. He is the. Uh, he's like David in the wilderness. He's been anointed, but he's not enthroned. He is on that holding ground. He's like the crown prince waiting for the opportunity to be given the kingdom and to take the kingdom. And so that doesn't occur until the Son of Man goes to the Ancient of Days, receives the kingdom that's described by the seven-sealed document in Revelation chapters, chapter 5, when that is given to the Lamb before the throne. That is when he has the kingdom credentials. That's when he's given the right to go take back the earth from the prince of the power of the air. So what we have here is really the authority that is stated in Ephesians, that God gave him to be head over all things to the church, that he is the head of the church, Ephesians 1.22, Ephesians 4.15, Ephesians 5.23, Christ is the head of the church. The authority understood here must be understood in terms of the mission that God has given the apostles. There is something new. They are not part of the Old Testament framework. They are part of something totally new. They're going to be the apostles. They're, they're, they will be uh, the, the foundation for the church. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, 20, the prophets and apostles, and that's talking about New Testament prophets and New Testament apostles are the foundation of the church. They are not, um, they're not a continuation of the Old Testament plan for Israel. And so there's a new mission now. If you go back and you read in the Old Testament, Israel was supposed to be a model nation. And whenever the nations would come to Israel, would look at Israel, when the caravans would come through, they would go back to their homes and, and talk about this incredible nation that has been blessed by God. And so the witness of Israel in the Old Testament was that people would come to them and then they would go home talking about how God had blessed this one people. In the church age, we are sent out. We are to go throughout the world and take the gospel to everyone. That's the significance of Jesus' statement in John 20 that I send you. He, He does send us. That's not the point of the go here because it's not a command. 
The go, as I pointed out, is while you are going. He's referencing, I've already commanded you, I'm sent, or told you I'm sending you. Now, while you're going, this is what you do. In John 20, he said he was sending them, but he didn't tell them what they were going to do until John 21 when he has that conversation with Peter about feeding the sheep. So the authority here is from Christ. He's establishing that. So, as I saw last, said last time, the four key terms that must be understood here are go, and we've looked at that, make disciples, that's the command that controls everything in these two verses, and the two words baptizing and teaching, the I-N-G ending in English tells you that it's a participle, it's not a finite verb, and when you look at the Greek grammar, it's really important because you have to identify the kind of adverbial participle it is, and it, they are explaining how the command is to be fulfilled, how you are to do it. How do we make disciples? You do it by baptizing, and you do it by teaching. And so the first word that's used is also participle, and it's it's at the beginning of the sentence, and it's the just as I pointed out last time, it's the word peruomai, which means to go, to proceed, uh, to go on a journey, to walk. All of these are part of it, but as a participle, it also relates to the main verb. And so it is describing the context of making disciples. It's when you're going, when you are proceeding in life while you are going. It does have, will pick up something of an imperatival sense from the context, but the dominant idea is more of the temporal sense. And then we get to the main command. The main command is the verb mathetuo, which is an aorist active imperative. Now, let's talk about this. Grammar just blows people away, but, but it's important. Why didn't Jesus use a present imperative? Present imperatives would emphasize something that's a continual uh, modus operandi. It's your standard operating procedure. But it's an heiress. That doesn't mean the idea that this shouldn't be a uh, standard operating procedure is negated. But what the heiress imperative does is it brings out the priority of this. This is, this is really important. This is a priority. This is the priority. This is your main mission. This is why you... Uh, go uh, as you go about your life. This is to dominate how you serve me, and it relates to everyone. The problem that we have today is that the idea of be- becoming a disciple, or the catchphrase that has been important for probably the last fifty years or so, probably seventy-five years, is the idea of discipleship. And this grew out of some writings that occurred back in the 19th century, one of which was by uh, A.B. Bruce, who wrote a book called The Training of the Twelve, which when I first started uh, getting serious about Bible study, I heard a number of people mention who later on I came to understand because of their emphasis on small group, uh, small group methodology 
that this influenced him. So while he comes out of the 19th century, what happens is there's this study that Jesus, this is how Jesus did it. He didn't do it by building a church. He did it by picking a small group and working with that small group. And out of that, as I pointed out last time, you had many different organizations, usually targeting young people, uh, had large campus ministries. The Navigators was one. Campus Crusade for Christ was another. Campus Life was another. Young Life was another. All of these tended to focus on this small group dynamic, that this is how Jesus did it. He picked a small group and worked through that small group. Now, the question that should be asked is, is that what Paul did? Is that what Peter did? Is that what John did? We don't know what the other disciples did because they didn't leave anything in any writings in the epistles, but is that what they did? Now, I'm not saying that there's there's something wrong with that. We all, as pastors, as Bible teachers, have... A, a, a smaller circle of people that we will mentor more and uh, we can't deny the fact that there is something that is more efficient in working with a smaller group of people but is this a hard and fast methodology that has been handed down in the church does the New Testament by the mention of discipleship mean what Campus Crusade means what navigators mean, and today that this thing has segued and and transitioned uh, into something called spiritual formation groups, and that's another horrible buzzword. And you find them at every seminary now. And the root of spiritual formation groups is really in uh, a lot of Roman Catholic mysticism, and they will often emphasize the importance of reading the medieval mystics. What are Protestants doing reading and going to medieval Catholic mystics to find biblical truth? And yet this has become very popular in the last 30 years. And it's a, it's a danger because a, the focus goes internal instead of onto the word, uh, word of God. Mysticism is very much antithetical to a biblical view of spirituality. So we have to recognize that that a lot of things that we may think about in terms of uh, discipleship, ideas that come to our minds, are contemporary expressions of this, but that's not part of the core meaning or even the secondary meanings uh, of this, this particular word. So I want to talk about this a little bit. The verb is mathe tuo. It's not used a lot outside of the Gospels. Uh, it, if you break down, I, I've got a breakdown here, not only of the verb mate tuo, but also of the, uh, of the noun mathetes, which is the word for a disciple. That's the noun. The noun is used, um, other than a reference to just the 12, it's used one time in Matthew and one time in Luke. All of the other... Um, uh, I mean, this is this is a reference to general disciples. Let me back up a minute. A big discussion, and we'll we'll see an issue on this in just a minute. Big discussion today, and has been going on for quite a while. Is is the term disciple uh, an equivalent to a believer? In other words, are every believer's disciples, and are every every if you're a disciple, does that mean you're a believer? 
And that's not what's in the Bible. The Bible recognizes there are many who are, who are believers in Jesus Christ and they are justified and they are saved. They will spend eternity in heaven, but they aren't disciples. They never become disciples. They're just glad to be born again, but they do not take up the challenge to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. When, when they die, they're no more mature. They know no more about the Bible than they did the day after they were saved. They're not just not that interested in growing. They are distracted by the cares of the world. What we find in the Scripture is that the term mathetes for disciple describes not only the twelve. That's the dominant use in the Gospels and in Acts. It's never used in the epistles. Isn't that interesting? Because what you will get if you listen to a lot of contemporary Bible teachers is that Matthew 28, 19, and 20 is your catch-all phrase, your key defining purpose for the church. It's to make disciples. Paul never uses the noun or the verb. Peter never uses the noun or the verb. John never uses the noun or the verb. So what's going on? I mean, Jesus seems to make a big deal about it, but only Matthew makes a big deal about it in terms of the verb. He's the only one who uses the verb in in relation to what Christ teaches. I think that's an important observation that's ignored by most people. So it's not that technical of a term. That's all I'm saying. What we learn from it is that as a noun, it refers to those who are students, those who are followers, they're pupils, they're learners, they're followers of a teacher. That's how it's basically used uh, when we look at it, its use in the ancient world. So it's used to describe believers other than the 12. For example, you have the two on the road to Emmaus in Luke. They're not part of the 12, but they're, they're disciples. So Matthew talks about other believers other than the 12 by referring to them as disciples one time and Luke one time, the two on the road to Emmaus. That's it. They're used to refer to the students, the followers of John, uh, John the Baptist, four times in Matthew, two times in Mark, two times in Luke, two times in John. Jesus teaches about a disciple, a disciple something or other and talks about some characteristic of a disciple as a follower of his teacher. And he does that three times in Matthew, one time in Luke, not at all in Mark, and three times in John. These are just general principles about a a disciple. We have the students of the Pharisees mentioned by Matthew one time. Joseph of Arimathea is identified as a disciple in Matthew one time, in John two times. The verb is used three times in Matthew alone. Mark never uses the verb. Luke doesn't use the verb. John doesn't use the verb. Uh, It refers to the 12 in Matthew 66 times, Mark 44 times, Luke 33 times, and John 71 times. And in Acts, it's different. One time it refers to the 12. All of the other uses in Acts are references to just general believers. There you might get the idea that it is a term that is synonymous with being a believer, but you won't get that from from the Gospels. And so what we see is that people who were in the early church weren't 
the kind that just said, okay, I believe in Jesus, I'm glad I'm saved, that's it. They seem to be oriented to being students of the Word. Now, when it comes to a disciple, we have a problem today. And this problem is those who understand disciple to be a synonym for a believer. And you run into this most specifically from the Lordship Salvation crowd. And this dominates today. And one of the most vocal spokesmen for this is John MacArthur. John MacArthur's had a tremendous ministry. I believe many many people are saved. Uh, I used to listen to MacArthur all the time on the radio back in the 70s and early 80s, and that's about the time that his lordship salvation began to be so, so visible. For those who don't know, lordship salvation is in part the idea that Salvation is not just belief in Christ. You have to accept Jesus' full authority at that time. In other words, his lordship, or you weren't saved. Another aspect is they think that there's a difference between true belief and false belief. That you can have a true belief in Jesus as your Savior, believe he died on the cross for your sins, And if it's true, it will necessarily be evidenced by good fruit, which makes everybody fruit inspectors. They will also teach that there are those who who can believe Jesus died for their sins, but it's a false faith. You didn't know that. They will say it's a false faith because if it's not evidenced by good works then you didn't really believe. And see, everybody falls prey to that at some point or another. You look at somebody, you talk about some world hero, you talk about some mass murderer, and you hear that they were, they had made conversion at some point, had a clear understanding and belief in the gospel, like Karl Marx. And when he was a teenager, when he was about 15, his father, who's Jewish, converted to Christianity, and Karl Marx wrote in high school a paper on justification that nailed it. He really clearly understood it. People say, oh, yeah, but you look at the rest of his life, he didn't have real faith. Now, if you believe that, you don't believe in grace. That's, that's the key, is that there's a difference between justification and sanctification. Justification is, I believe Jesus died for my sins and I'm saved. Sanctification is what I do after that. And after that, a lot of people are just like, like the parable uh, of the tares. It's they're just choked out the, and, and they never grow. So this is what MacArthur says. That's a brief overview of lordship. And this is, comes to focus in his def, definition and understanding of a disciple. He says, a disciple refers to believing and learning. That's the idea, believing and learning. Where does he get the idea of believing in that? We have to ask that question. He has imported that to the definition, and you won't find a, a Greek dictionary, and you won't find anything in a study word study of that word that even comes close to indicating that belief is part of learning. He imports that. He says it refers to believing and learning. Jesus was not referring simply to believers or simply to learners 
or he would have used other words. Matheteo carries a beautiful combination of meanings. Well, let me stop there. He did use other words. He used other words in Mark and Luke and John, and Paul used other words in his epistles, and Peter in his epistles, and John in his epistles. MacArthur's made a fundamental logical flaw here by th- making this word the end-all, be-all, catch-all of defining what a Christian is. Methetuo, he goes on to say, carries a beautiful combination of meanings in this context that relates to those who place their trust in Jesus Christ and follow him in lives of continual, continual learning and o- obedience. That is what a disciple is, but he's going to say that's true of every believer. That's where he makes a, has, a, has a fallacy. So he goes on to say, if you abide in my word, Jesus said, then you are truly disciples of mine. It's, and, and he completely blows that because abiding is fellowship. Abiding isn't being saved. Not all believers abide in Christ. Whenever we sin and we walk in darkness, we're not abiding in Christ. That's what First John is all about. But, of course, he has no clue what First John is talking about. He goes on to say, a person who is not Christ's true disciple does not belong to him, and is not saved. So if somebody believes Jesus died for their sins when they were in eighth, eight, when they were eight years old in Sunday school, and then when they get off to college and they reject Christianity and reject the truth, according to MacArthur, they weren't really saved. And so the question is, how do you know if you're really saved? The Bible says you know you're saved because you believe in Jesus as your Savior. That's what John says 95 times. He uses the unqualified term believe. He doesn't say sincerely believe, truly believe, genuinely believe. He says believe. And you have eternal life. And so when MacArthur came out with his first book, the Gospel According to Jesus, uh, dealing real with his theology of lordship. There was a bookstore in Irving, Texas called The Living Vine, and I lived in Irving, pastored in Irving at the time, and another pastor friend of mine named Tommy Ice came up from Austin. It was the Christian Booksellers Convention in Dallas, and the owner of this bookstore invited a bunch of pastors to come and for MacArthur to talk to us. And Tommy and I sat just, you know, just under the, the sneeze glass there at, at MacArthur's feet. And when he finished giving his articulation of the gospel, I raised my hand and I said, so, Dr. MacArthur, how certain are you that you're going to go to heaven when you die? Because you're relatively young now. You're in your late 40s, early 50s. And what happens if you turn against Christ as you get older? He said, well, that's possible. So I I guess I have a 95% assurance of salvation. That's what lordship salvation gets you. You just don't really know. The reason MacArthur got that way, and I had the same experience. He had a close friend. He had been involved in ministry with him in high school and in college, doing beach evangelism, working with Campus Crusade, doing all of this. And then this buddy goes off to college somewhere back east and comes back as an atheist, rejecting the Bible and just turns and rejects everything about Christianity. 
And MacArthur just can't deal with it, so he said the only solution he come to is he never was really saved. I had the same thing happen to me. One of my close friends that I grew up with at Camp and I'll counseled with everything. I heard this guy preach great sermons on salvation. I have no doubt that he was saved, but now he's a new age, new age psychiatrist and has been for the last 45 years. But he's saved. Because I understand grace. MacArthur doesn't. MacArthur says you can't, if you're not a disciple for the rest of your life, then you weren't really saved. But, the Bauer, Danker, Art, and Gingrich Dictionary, uh, Alex kind of Greek says that mathetes means to be a pupil, a learner, one who engages in learning through instruction from another. You can be a disciple and not a believer. That was Judas Iscariot. You can be a believer and not a disciple, and that relates to a lot of the people who left Jesus as he became, got closer and closer to the cross. The New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology says that a man is called mathetes when he binds himself to someone else in order to acquire his practical and theoretical knowledge. He becomes a student. He may be an apprentice in a trade, a student of medicine, or a member of a philosophical school. One can only be a mathetes in the company of a didaskalos, a teacher, a master or teacher to whom the mathetes since the days of the sophists generally had to pay a fee, an obvious exception to this is when mathetes refers to spiritual dependence on a thinker long since dead. This word group, mathetes, mathetuo, is used in the Septuagint to translate Hebrew words for learning. Deuteronomy 4.10, talking about it, what Israel learned when they stood before the Lord at Horab, When the Lord said to me, Moses said, Gather the people to me, and I will let them hear my words, that they may learn to fear me. Learn is mathetuo in the Septuagint. What are they learning? They're learning God's words. That's the focal point. Deuteronomy 17, 19, And it shall be with him, and he shall... This is talking about the king who writes out his own personal copy of the Torah. It shall be with him, and he shall read it in the days, in all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord is God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes. Mathetes is about learning. It's about being a student of the word and learning God's word. Deuteronomy 31.12, Gather the people together, men and women and little ones, and the stranger who is within your gates, that they may hear and that they may learn to fear the Lord. What are they hearing? They're hearing the word of God. That is how you made learners, is you taught them the Word of God. So this idea is still very much a part of Jewish culture in the, in the Second Temple period when Jesus is teaching. Disciple, I mean, apostles, excuse me, Pharisees had their disciples. John the Baptist had his disciples. They were learning from them. They were students. So Jesus had his. Most were believers. As we know with Judas, some were not. Psalm 119.71 also uses Matetuo in the Greek. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. Great passage when you're going through suffering. This is a teaching time for the Lord. It's paralleled in the pastorals in 2 Timothy 3.12. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Those who desire to live godly are those who are becoming disciples. They're learners. They're growing spiritually. That's what a disciple is. So 
I want to stop there today. We have understood what a disciple is. A disciple is someone who's a learner. He, he, he is taught. Acts 2.42 and other passages in Acts tell us how the apostles understood this. At the end of Peter's sermon on the that first day of Pentecost when the church was born, the description of those early believers is they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. They were learning. That's the function of becoming a disciple, is you devote yourselves to the teaching of the Word. It's not a Sunday-only thing. It is a seven-day-a-week operation. And we understand this is what the disciples were doing because the... Sanhedrin prohibited them from teaching the people and they didn't listen to him and they're accused again of teaching the people. That's what they did. Notice, and when you have the word uh, preaching that's used here in, in these verses, it's evangelizo, which means to give the gospel, to evangelize. It's not this artificial breakdown we have in churches today where you have preaching which is what you do on Sunday morning and that is a motivational exhortational message and teaching is restricted to Sunday school or to some other environment. If you look at the early church in Acts and in the pastorals, the primary thing that they did was to teach was to instruct people in the scriptures that's how you feed the sheep That's how you equip the saints. That's the mission of the church. And it's not in a small group. It is to whoever. It may be 10 people, 12 people, 1,000 people, 10,000 people. It is instructing them in the word of God. That is how we make students of the word of God, is teaching them the word of God. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study and reflect on this to understand the mission of the church is to make learners of the word, teaching them the word, uh, giving them a, a hunger and a thirst to know your word, to learn your word. And it is you, the content of your word that motivates us through God the Holy Spirit. Father, we're thankful that we have such a great picture of salvation in the scriptures of uh, Jesus is the Lamb of God and how it teaches us that he and he alone did everything necessary for our salvation so that salvation is not based on our works, uh, not based on either works done ahead of time or works done afterwards. It's based simply and solely on believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in him. And at the instant we do, we have eternal life. And we pray that anyone who's listening online, anyone who's listening to this lesson, who's never believed in Jesus, that they would understand clearly that that is the issue that if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will have everlasting life. Now, Father, we pray that you would uh, challenge us, each one of us in our own lives. Are we willing to be disciples and in areas of our life, such as in our family, in our homes, make disciples? And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.